My outer world was getting smaller because of Parkinson's, and my inner world was getting bigger. You have decided that it's going to be a good day. Circumstances don't dictate it. Your spirit within dictates what the day will be like. The only thing you have is today. Hello and welcome to Elder Wisdom, Stories from the Green Bench. I'm your host, Aaron Davis, and along with my 85-year-old co-host, Lloyd Hetherington, we get the honor and pleasure of talking with residents at Schlegel Village's retirement and long-term care homes. Our guests on these bi-weekly podcasts come from all walks of life, and I hope you'll go back and dip your toes into some of our past episodes, including episode 11, where Lloyd stepped into the spotlight, and this educator, theologian, published writer, father, grandfather, and widower told his story. It was wonderful, so please do check it out, as you can all of our previous episodes, through the elderwisdom.ca website. Today, we have a sparkling chat with a woman who's a lot like our host, Lloyd. She has given her life to ministry. And Lloyd, you've got a lot in common with our guest today, so why don't you set the table for our chat? I'd be glad to do that. I've been living in a Schlegel village for a little over a year now. It's sort of a culmination, a place where I've been able to reflect on my journey so far. I was trained as a teacher and found opportunity to teach for the Salvation Army in Zambia, in St. John's, in Toronto, and Winnipeg. But in addition to the teaching, we always involved our students or our cadets in street ministries because we believe so very, very strongly that the church needs to get out to the people. And so it was that it was part of my DNA to reach out and meet those people who had a very different background from me. And what a revelation it was to meet them and get to know the real people. So often we just lump them all together and we're so quick to label them the hobo, the vagrant, the homeless, whatever label you want to put on. And it's only as you get to know them you realize that they come from such diverse backgrounds. I've met doctors on the street and dentists and lawyers, all of them for a whole variety of reasons, have had the world crash around them, and they've ended up destitute and in despair and alone except for the street culture that sustains them. It's just been my delight to get to know some of these people in a very special way. And that's part of what we're doing today, Lloyd, in talking with Margaret. She's a resident of Winston Park in Kitchener, but she and her late husband lived in Toronto and she was a minister focusing on street ministry and working with the homeless and those living in the margins. So you two both have so much in common, and uh, I'm just so looking forward to your conversation with Margaret. So, Margaret, welcome in. Thank you. It's good to have you on board, Margaret. We share so much in common, you know. We both have a heart for ministry and a heart for people. You know what First Corinthians 13 said that, We can speak eloquently, but if we don't have love, we're just a noisy symbol. 
and you recognize that and you put it into practice, do you want to share some of the experiences that you've had in this outreach to others? Yes, I'd be glad to. When I was doing ministry for the United Church of Canada in Scarborough, I was also doing ministry on the street because that was part of that congregation's outreach. And I uh, was working with an aging court community services center from uh, Scarborough area doing um, ministry uh, as part of an outreach project. So I worked with those that were on the street and I worked with several people who were new immigrants to Canada and lived just a few blocks away from the congregation I was serving. My husband, who had been a Waterloo Regional Police Officer, uh, he was not trained as a minister, but he was doing ministry as far as I'm concerned, because he was working with Agent Court Community Centre as well. So we were both doing social justice work, but we tried to keep people unaware that we were married to each other <laughs> because we thought that that would probably be more helpful and we wouldn't end up getting blindsided. How do you mean blindsided, Margaret? Well, blindsided in the sense that sometimes people are in a position of feeling insecure. Mm -hmm. And so they have done, as Lloyd said, many kinds of things in their careers and background. So they might not trust. They certainly probably are not trusting of the system anymore. And that may be why they're on the street. So it was better to work as two people who knew each other. And because we were working out of our own agency, so to speak, although he and I would sometimes have supper time conversations, we uh, kept it separated in terms of personal uh, activities. I wondered about that, if it made for a stronger marriage or if you carried home a lot of the heaviness of the work that you did and the problems and the hardships of the people that you both worked with, respectively. I grew up in a very innocent family, raised in the church, in the United Church of Canada. And so I didn't know street language because my mother did lots of questions that she answered for me. And she used body parts by their proper names. So when Rex and I first got married, we were working with a youth group in Kitchener. They were marginalized because they were not able to be in the regular academic stream and were geared towards becoming uh, oh, hairdressers, for instance, or those kinds of... Right, trades. Yeah, in the trades, that's right. And so uh, they were often from backgrounds that were harsh. Um, they knew street language. And many times I would say to my new husband, what does this mean? And having had a conversation with the girls, and then I would say to him, well, why didn't she just say this using the correct body term? And he would say, probably because she doesn't know it. <laughs> so uh, that was my early training into street ministry as such. You may or may not know that Scarborough has running through it a national urban park, and it is on the perimeter of Scarborough and Pickering runs in a valley all the way from Lake Ontario, way north. It's uh, both farmland and parkland and bushland. 
and a lot of people can hang out in that area um, uh, without being discovered. However, uh, the Agent Court Community Center uh, had meals that they provided, and two or three of the churches also provided meals, and uh, people would end up coming to me for all kinds of reasons, sometimes for substance abuse and sometimes for whatever their needs were. And so that was part of my contact with them. And sometimes it was just a straight contact, literally on the street, where somebody needed help and I knew how to listen to them and then how to maybe help them find some way to be safer than they were. You've just hit on something, Margaret, that is so very important, just to listen. And I think that I'd like to listen as you and Lloyd talk about your shared experiences. And Lloyd's daughter has worked with the homeless and disenfranchised on the streets of Toronto. And it is just about listening. So Lloyd, please go ahead. My daughter is a school teacher by profession. And she determined once she graduated from the University of Guelph, that she was going to go to teach in Regent Park, got a teaching appointment there. So during the day, she's a teacher. Several evenings a week and on weekends, she'd be out on the street uh, looking after the needs of people. And as Margaret said, listening to them, getting to know them. And uh, it's a rather exciting experience for her. While she was there, she met a young gentleman who was also on the streets doing ministry. Romance followed and marriage, and I now have two delightful grandchildren, and they still live in Regent Park, and they still invite people in for a meal so that if I go as a guest at Christmas time or Thanksgiving, there'll be the little nucleus of the family, but who knows what other guests will be there. We sometimes have sat down to have 17, 18, 20 people as guests. Wow. And she has been encouraging her sons to be aware of the people. When I was taking my youngest grandson, who was three at the time, to the daycare up on Gerard Street, we passed by a Tim Hortons. And as we approached the crowd of men at Tim Hortons, he kept saying, Jim, Jim, Jim. And I didn't understand what he was trying to tell me. When I got home that night, I explained it to my daughter. And she said, oh, that's Jim, one of the people who spends all his time in front of Tim Hortons. And my grandson had actually built a bond with Jim and would give him high fives and uh, smile at him and so on. And I deprived him of the privilege that day. So... You, Margaret, you were raised in a protected environment. My daughter is raising her boys in a protected environment, but with a window on what's happening around them so that they can see the world there, come home and process it in safety and security. Yes, I understand that. My th uh, three daughters, that Rex and I have, um, they had the attitude that uh, they were PK kids, <laughs> and the PK stood not just for preacher's kids, but also for police kids. <laughs> and so um, they used to say to their friends, well, uh, dad says that if my wife doesn't get you uh, help, then you get me. <laughs> <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> it was double-barreled then, for sure. That's right. 
And when you were speaking about uh, your grandchild, um, my grandchildren uh, have definitely been exposed either when they were with their grandfather or with me when we would uh, be on the streets in Toronto because we would stop and take time um, to address someone who called out to us or um, squat down and be face-to-face with them if they were sitting on the ground, ask them what their needs were, listen to them, and our grandchildren were with us. That's marvelous. Uh, More than once, my granddaughters or my grandson, and there's a funny story about my one grandson, I'll tell you in a minute, but they knew that my answer would be often not to give money, but rather to say, okay, what is it that you really want here? Like sometimes it was money and sometimes I did give money. But most of the time I would find other things Mm -hmm. to give. Uh, Like I know where there's a place we can get something to eat or I know where there's a shelter that you can go regularly or a place to have a meal safely. And so uh, those kinds of conversations would take place and So they learned by simply watching and taking part in that kind of way. Um, The funny story with my one grandson was in right in the downtown core at one of the big United churches across the street was uh, McDonald's and the McDonald's there had talking garbage cans. And my husband was with our two eldest grandsons and was walking across the street when a woman who lived life differently than I did, um, had only a fur coat and boots on and was flagging down the traffic in the middle of the street. (laughs) So my grandson said to his grandfather, "Um, Grandpa, Grandpa, that lady needs our help. She doesn't have any clothes on except her (laughs) fur coat. And um, my husband's thinking, think fast, Rex. (laughs) So anyway, just then the talking garbage can had somebody dump a coffee cup into it and my husband was able to say yes but I think that she's all right and uh why look at that the garbage can is talking to us jeez thinking fast on your feet both of you have had to do that a lot (laughs) yeah but you did the right thing exposing your grandchildren to that way of life but being there as a protector for them and an interpreter and a guide we sometimes shelter our children far too much And they don't see what life is really like. Yes. So what would you say, Margaret, as a family drives by someone sitting homeless on the street or a group of people outside that coffee shop, and children say, who are they or why are they there? We are so quick to judge as a society in general. And I hear your word choices, you know, she lived differently from us. And I think, oh, that is such a beautiful way of framing things. What do we say to our children? What do we say to ourselves? Oh, well, I'm a Christian minister. So I would use Christian scripture to say, we're all created in God's image in some way. Uh, I believe that to be a universal truth, not just some particular culture or ethnicity or color of skin or any of those things, but rather that all people are created in that Mm -hmm. way. And so I try, I'm not always good at it, but I try to remember that when I'm approaching someone. And so when I'm talking with my children or my grandchildren, I try to show them 
those things as well, that this was a person who deserved respect, even though they were begging on the street for something, or even though they were perhaps under the influence of some a substance that they had. But there is also a warning in that because children need to also be aware that that doesn't mean that we bury our heads and aren't alert because sometimes those who've taken strong substances, mm -hmm. and I've seen as a minister in emergency doing pastoral care, um, actually somebody being brought in by the police, being cuffed to the uh, sides of a bed and being able to actually destroy their body as well as the bed by being able to pull so strongly. The drug overdosed them so badly and gave them something that they didn't really have and uh, would use that kind of force. So when you're doing this, you need to respect, but you also need to be alert because you can be taken or you could be harmed in some cases. Mm -hmm. And so children are pretty bright. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we sometimes don't give them credit and they pick up on those kinds of things. If you show them that you really mean that that person needs to be respected. Uh, and even those who have been under the influence of strong drugs and are able to, to do that kind of violence, we need to look after them with care, but uh, there needs to be a respectable distance that's kept for those who aren't trained on how to look after them. You are right, Margaret, that we must treat everyone with dignity and respect. Circumstances have put people in some very awkward and difficult situations. And there's no one guideline, no one point. There's not one way of saying that everyone is homeless because of every situation is unique. And so you treat that person with kindness, dignity, and respect, and you find the ways in which you can build the bridges to them. And it may be as simple as just being in their presence saying, I'm here and I care. In the 21st century now, a growing problem of homelessness, and I concur and agree and embrace every single thing that both you, Margaret, and Lloyd are saying, but what about the people who are feeling now intimidated, afraid, deprived of places like park spaces and the ability to walk down the street and not be accosted? How do we deal with those feelings of resentment or anger at what is being taken away from us, for example, and turn that into some activism to help to make the situation better? I honestly don't know. I wish I did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, things like the newly arisen again, um, Black movement, is an approach to education. If we take the time to listen to what's being said, those of us who might walk down the street and be threatened. I have no comprehension as a white person who was never wealthy, but was raised with respect, what they encounter. And so when we really listen to their story, we can learn from that. And so in that kind of learning, we can then find ways to maybe become connected. 
But I think it's really important to never take on as if we know it all um, or as if somehow, oh, yes, I understand what you're saying. I know what you mean, Mm. because that's not true. We only know to some degree because they've told us or because we've seen it uh, happen to other people. But we can't assume that we really know uh, what they've been through. And so I can't tell you, Erin, exactly how we can not be afraid, except through the process of education. And so things like podcasts and other broadcast means, um, articles that are written, we can't make anyone learn, but we can offer them the opportunity to learn. And activism doesn't mean having to picket or to do anything like that. We can be quietly activist in one-on-one ways. And one of the tips that you had, you talked about asking people, okay, what is it that you really need? But also gift cards, like gift cards for food, for example. And in the giving, letting go of control of where you think that should be spent. And that comes with the judgment piece, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can't decide that somebody should have a ham sandwich because you're having one. Right. Well put. So often we assume that we have the answers We don't even know the questions. And so we've got to use common sense. And it's when you draw near to a person and find out where they are, where they're coming from, and show that love and interest for the individual, that lives begin to change. We can change the world, but we got to do it one step at a time, one person at a time. And if everyone made that commitment to build a better society, a better world, and then moved out of their protected little ghettos and saw the way some people lived, then things could begin to change. It comes down to walking a mile in another man's moccasins. And that's ancient and it's so true because in terms of poverty, there's some quarter million Canadians, and this was as of a few years ago, because imagine what it's like with all of the low-income jobs having disappeared and slowly coming back. But The poverty with which we live, according to homelesshub.ca, says that many people are one illness, accident, or paycheck away from losing their homes. And you wonder, how does somebody come to live in their car? Or if they don't have a car, then on the street. It's because there's simply no other way, and they've fallen through the cracks in our social welfare. We are all so close to the precipice. That's correct. And a whole lot of Young people are facing that as well as they graduate and still can't find work. There are also areas within the system that are cultural and within certain cultures, it's seen to be a shame item uh, to have someone in your family that is not fitting whatever is perceived to be the norm Mm -hmm. because Uh, they're embarrassed by it. They try to hide that person or kick them out on the street permanently. And I've worked a lot with youth and a lot of youth have been abused in their homes. And so those are all individual circumstances that need individual respective care. And anyone who works in the social justice system as Lloyd's uh, daughter does, Uh, knows that, knows that you can't just group everyone under the same umbrella. Margaret, I like the way you describe that. Every individual you see is a unique situation. 
There's no one-size-fits-all. Government can legislate all they want, but there will still be many who do not fit into the system that the government is thinking. We've got to be creative in so many, many ways. It takes the whole community to be alert and uh, ask what can they do to make a difference. Tragically, in our 21st century, many are living uh, almost to self. They're not even aware of what happens on their doorstep. And so we need to see community life develop again. That's where churches can play such a significant role. That's where the community centers can play a significant role. And that's where even uh, people within their own community can rally around and say, something's got to be done, and then begin to realize ways in which they can meet the need kindly, respectfully, gently, in a way that will transform the caregiver and the individual that they're caring for. Yes, that's correct. And to try and understand, I guess, where that person's coming from. Uh, gradually, here in Canada, certain things have been accepted that weren't acceptable only, what, 20 years ago or maybe a little longer in terms of relationship. And so we didn't see people who were uh, gay or lesbian uh, as um, acceptable because we turned away from and didn't recognize that their partners were significant to them because that was how they had fellowship, how they had comradeship, how they had love. And uh, that it was as natural as it was for somebody who calls themselves heterosexual. But some of our Christian, early Christian values have not been very good with being inclusive. They have been exclusive, thinking that if you're not doing it my way, you're not doing it right. And uh, we've had to learn uh, as Christians to do a better job at that and to be more open and inclusive. And it's a slow process. It does not happen overnight. And certainly within certain cultures, we know that globally, there are definitely places where it's still impossible. It means their life mm -hmm. if uh, they are oriented in a certain way. We talk about what we can do as a society, and so often we will turn to the government. But there's a great quote from a fellow who happens to be the president now of the United States. And it was Joe Biden who said that no fundamental social change occurs merely because the government acts. It's because civil society, the conscience of a country, begins to rise up and demand, demand, demand change. And, you know, we are the society, regardless of who we worship or where we worship or if we worship. And anybody can be an activist by writing letters, by not turning a blind eye. And, Margaret, we can't thank you enough for talking about this today, about your life and your life's work and yours and Rex together and apart. And we're just so grateful to you for sharing your experience with us here today, collectively. Thank you very much. And thank you for this opportunity to share a little bit. Oh, my goodness. You were a wonderful guest. I'm sure Lloyd agrees. I, I am just thrilled. And Margaret, once the pandemic is eased off a bit, walk across the road to the Salvation Army that's just on the other side of the road from your village and say, look, I'm a social activist. How can you use me in family services? And then be prepared. They'll find something for you.
Take it from the Lieutenant Colonel retired there, Margaret. Yes, yes. He had mentioned uh, Salvation Army previously, and I indicated that I had um, in my maternal grandparents' heritage, I had Salvation Army. I learned how I could pray long time, and I learned how to sing all those gospel hymns. <laughs> Yay! Right. You two have to meet for real on the green bench, I think. Right. That sounds good. My other daughter attends the church right across from where Margaret lives, so I'm sure once things are eased up, we will meet. Absolutely, you will. Okay. Thank you. You never know what friendships, what connections are going to be made here on the Green Bench. Thanks again, Margaret, and join Lloyd and me next time as we turn the spotlight onto Trish and Mary, two of the women keeping everyone happy and well taken care of at Schlegel Village's retirement and long-term care homes as we salute Caregivers Week. I promise at least one story that is going to stay with you forever. I know it will me. You can find out more about our podcasts. Catch up with some new old friends by going to elderwisdom.ca. And while you're there, be sure to make the Elder Wisdom Pledge, won't you? On behalf of Lloyd and me, Aaron Davis, thank you. And remember, your seat on the green bench is ready and waiting. Elder Wisdom, Stories from the Green Bench, is brought to you by Schlegel Villages, a complete continuum of care offering independent living to long-term care, celebrating and honoring the wisdom of the elder. To learn more about us, please go to our website, schlegelvillages.com.